We are uh, starting our series on Philippians, a small letter written from the Apostle Paul to this church in the city of Philippi. It's uh, one of those places that's now filled with tourists from around the world trying to get their little piece of Greece. Uh, So that's uh, some of us regularly, but also back then it was just a city. Uh, We've made up a guide for everybody to go through this. It's an individual guide. There's a bunch for free on the table right outside. Please take one. There's one for you, and it's going to guide you through how do you do your own personal study of the book of Philippians, but then also how do you talk about it in your DNA groups throughout the week too, and then we'll be doing different stuff in our missional communities also. So there's, take one of these. It's really good. It's really worth it, and Kudos to the artwork Nate Perry made. I gave him a bunch, a bunch of words, and then he made this beautiful thing. I don't know how, but basically how the church, the bride of Christ, is this, is the bride, and that's what you see here, who has sorrow, but also joy, and that's what the flower and the life coming out of that sorrow looks like, and I just think that's a beautiful picture of the church. Nate Perry, what an artist. Love him, thankful for him. Kudos to him. Right? Yeah, okay. Y'all are like, I don't know. So, I want to start with my friend, Ernest Hemingway. He says, and I've said this before, but he says in his book, Farewell to Arms, which is this masterpiece that everyone should read, but he says this at the end. He says, the world breaks everyone. And afterwards, many are strong at the broken places, but those that will not break, it kills. And it kills the very good and the very gentle and the very brave impartially. The world breaks everyone. Is that the human experience? Is that what it means to be alive? It certainly feels like it, I think. Uh, Sure, there's these holidays moments, these vacations, these little glimmers of hope when it's golden hour, and you've had a good day at work, and you're walking on the streets of LA, and you feel like Randy Newman, ah, I love LA, right? You're like, this is my moment. I'm experiencing it. Or you're sipping some delicious coffee that somebody else made, which is always this really great privilege. Somebody else made you this cup of coffee, you're drinking it on a Saturday morning, and you notice, ah, life is good. Like, this is what life is all about. Or a child smiles at you, and you're like, yay. (laughs) Or a little puppy comes to you, and it, you know, licks your feet, and isn't weird, and is just happy and cute, and you're like, ah, yes, life is not breaking me. You close a deal, you win a case, you get accepted into a good program, and you're really feeling it. Or, as we say around here, you know, you're really vibing with it, or whatnot. You go to the Eras tour, you watch them sing, and you think, wow, I've achieved life success. Me and the other millions, we've boomed the economy just with our own will. Life is good, right? But those moments often feel fleeting, as if they're the exceptions. Uh, When your birthday comes and you think back over the past year, you go through your calendar and you find those highlight moments, usually around vacations or holidays or those really great moments when all of life sort of relented and you've patched together a few good hours of good news and you think, this is 
the way life is supposed to be, but you're like looking at it, reflecting back, and those are all exceptions. Mostly, it feels like the world breaks everyone. Uh, Sickness, depression, anxiety, relational brokenness, just profound unfairness everywhere. There's the rising costs, the rising budgets, the shortening of raises, friends move away, projects get dropped that you don't get to work on, kids have physical, emotional, cognitive issues that really just reveal your own social, emotional, cognitive issues. Your parents don't meet your expectations, and then you realize that your anger with them is really you don't meet your own expectations, and the world breaks everyone. Maybe Ernest was right. Then elections come, and you think, are they really going to run again? Are they really going to win again? Violence, war, there's assaults, there's crashing companies, There's your dreams that you just keep shifting one degree after another until you're like, I don't even know if it resembles a dream as much as a nightmare. Chaos, turmoil, dread, sorrow. Hemingway and many other voices probably say to you whenever you're laying in bed at night just asking, could I have good news tomorrow? The the Hemingways are just kind of shrugging their shoulder and saying, this is what it is. The world breaks everyone. Get over it. Uh, Barna reported in a 2022 study that 85% of people between the age of 25 and 45, so mostly us, except for my grandmother and my aunt who's here today, uh, most of us in the room in that age, 25 to 45, say that the purpose of life is to make the most of it while you can before disaster takes it away. 85% of people our age say that the purpose of life, the entire point of life, is to make the most of it while you can until disaster or something else takes it away. I think one of the great tragedies of the modern world is that we do not think that joy and sorrow can exist at the same time. We think that it's a binary situation. Things can be good and you can have joy, or things are bad and you have sorrow. We've stopped thinking that they can come alongside one another. We've stopped seeking uh, an internal kind of satisfaction when we're in bondage or chains or suffering or sorrow. I mean, I don't, I honestly, I don't blame us. It's, I don't, yeah, I think it's a tragedy and I'm not here to blame you of like, come on, get it together. Be joyful while you're upset. I mean, it makes sense. What else are you supposed to do after the carnage of humanity? Are you really supposed to think, let's be happy, let's be joyful? But there's the gospel, like the message of Jesus, which is what the book of Philippians is gonna be all about. The message of, of Christianity at the core of the Christian faith is this belief that carnage gets turned into glory always. That's like core, that the whole message is actually about sorrow becoming joy in the most sorrowful of circumstances or injustice through the gospel becomes justice and death itself becomes life. That's the entirety of the faith. 
Like if you're like, ah, I really wanna understand the Christian faith, it is that paradox. The gospel is really just shorthand for his life, Jesus's life, Jesus's death, and then his resurrection. Uh, His life was filled with false accusations. People kept telling other people lies about him. That was his life. His life was filled with criticism. There were plots against him all the time. You think people are plotting against you. Most of us are just narcissists. Jesus really had people plotting against him all the time, rejected constantly. Uh, The prophet Isaiah spoke about him saying that he would be a man acquainted with sorrows and griefs, meaning his best friends, his companions along the road would be sorrow and grief. That's his life. And we might think, see, the world breaks everyone. Look at Jesus, that's his life. But what Jesus' life was all about was actually not getting broken by the world, but he was breaking the entire systems of the world. Sickness came to him, he breaks the patterns of sickness with healing. Uh, Injustice, people in chains, he breaks the patterns by giving them freedom. Uh, People are coming to him weary, downtrodden. He says, I have life to give you overflowing. His life breaks the world. And then his death. He's there abandoned, mocked, tortured. The most awful of injustices that can happen in the world is an innocent person being punished to death. Like that's just the worst, right? That's why we we always have a pit in our stomach when uh, a child is abused or neglected or anything like that. That's why it's, it invokes in us such anger because they're not due that kind of wrath and carnage. But here's Jesus. This is, we're getting close to the center of the faith. On the cross, abandoned, mocked, innocent, and yet his life is being destroyed. And we think the world is breaking everyone. It kills everything. Except that in that moment, it's the turning point of all things. All things are turned in that moment of him dying on the cross. It's the gateway to the very presence of God, to the salvation of God. This this man taking on all death, all sorrow, it's not this, this horrific thing, but we get to sing as people have for generations. What a wonderful cross. What a good Friday. What a wonderful day where in that moment you see both sorrow and joy. And then his his uh, tomb, he gets put in this dark, damp place where rotting is supposed to happen, the place of rotting and decomposition, and instead, it's resurrection, the eradication of all evil, the proliferation of grace across generations, across the planet, hearts of humanity are raised to complete new life, we're raised to life from a tomb where dead things are supposed to grow. We're like, this is the message. Sorrow and joy. The things that you think are the most sorrowful, the the center of the gospel, the message of Christianity says, no, 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 that gets turned into joy by the power of God's love for those who believe. The world breaks everyone, but I'm here to tell you, Paul in this book of Philippians is here to tell you, uh, alongside a whole cloud of saints from generation after generation, they're all here to tell us Jesus redeems the world. The world is broken, but it gets repaired, and it gets repaired by the gospel, and it satisfies, 
Every storm, every chain, every bondage, the gospel satisfies. The gospel brings joy, not from a sunset or a latte, as good as these things are. I'm a big fan of Cortados. You can buy me one anytime. Joy that doesn't come from a well-choreographed social calendar where everybody gets the piece of you that they're supposed to get and all of your children get lined up in the way that they're supposed to go. No, this is a joy that springs forth from eternity, centered on the goodness and the grace of God. That kind of joy. And so as we engage this series of Philippians, you might have some questions on the viability of that kind of joy. Uh, It sounds good. I'm not the first person to come and sell you something that sounds good, right? You might think, can my soul really sing hallelujah when it is completely stuck? Like completely stuck. When I am bound, when I'm uncertain of what I'm supposed to do next or what's going to happen next, can I really sing praises to God from a place of joy? When life, I look back and it's not what I wanted and there's no new doors to be opened to get back to what I wanted. Through the Spirit and this piece of Scripture, you're going to hear, yes, you can rejoice and you can have a hallelujah well up within you from the depths of joy even when everything else is crumbling. You might also ask, uh, can we as a community or as Christians stand in confidence And in this world, in this city, when it seems like we're just being sequestered to an afterthought all the time, not like maliciously discarded, you know, none of us are getting paraded into prisons or anything like that, but every now and then Christmas comes up and it doesn't say Merry Christmas on our cup and it hurts our feelings, right? It doesn't really. I've never heard anyone in our church have their feelings hurt by Merry Christmas or the lack thereof. But when we're just being sequestered kind of like a gardener when they get done cutting the grass and they blow the stuff away into the street. And that's where we are culturally as Christians. Can we really stand in confidence and boldly proclaim the gospel and be a people that welcome others in? In this passage, you'll hear the Spirit say, yes, we can live an extraordinary life in the center of God's mission, not as a martyr, but as citizens of the kingdom of God that are at peace with the place we've been given. Last little example of a question you might have is, can we, as lonely as we feel, actually know a relational bond that exceeds uh, a social, financial, cultural status? Can we really have deep friendships and bonds with one another that exceeds our own health and ability to maintain those relationships. The Spirit will say through the Scriptures, yes, there's a friendship that goes beyond liking the same thing and being at the same stage of life and having the same politics and the same finances and the same likes and dislikes, but a friendship that's based on a common hope and a common partnership and a global transcendent purpose. That's my answer to some of the questions you might have around this joy thing. Uh, and I, I'm excited for us to do this, not only because it's, uh, it's a great letter and the artwork is really beautiful and that it speaks to us in those ways, but these are the very questions our culture asks, our neighbors and our friends. Our neighbors and our friends are, uh, this is just my own little soapbox, 
They're not out there asking these transcendent questions like, is God real? They don't really ask those questions very often. Or they're not out there trying to engage in us in debates on epistemology and these weird things. What they really want to know, our friends and our neighbors and our coworkers, is, is there any kind of happiness that isn't fleeting, that doesn't just go away? Like there's the day we get the little award for the work that we've done, and then the next day we feel like we're a fraud. Is there a happiness that exceeds that? Is there a happiness that exceeds, my child was cute and happy today, but he's not happy or cute tomorrow? Is there a happiness that transcends that, that you can actually latch onto and hold? And so I'm excited for us to study this just so that we can actually be people with our friends, with our neighbors who say, no, there is something that is lasting and that is eternal. And so that's what we're gonna do through the book of Philippians over the next four months. Does that sound good to y'all? You don't have a choice. You know, it's that kind of power dynamic structure that's a little askewed. Not a democracy, but it's okay. You don't live in one anyway. Uh, On that note, (laughs) it's always great when I make jokes about America. Uh, I'm gonna pray for us, and then we're gonna read just two verses to introduce us and get a taste of this letter. Jesus, we thank you for the sorrows that we experience, that we are a people acquainted with grief and sorrow too, of carnage, of a world not right. And God, I pray for us to be a people that continually pursue and try to see joy in the midst of sorrow and that you would turn it into that. Uh, We need you, Jesus. Uh, Our friends need you, our neighbors need you, our coworkers need you. Um, yeah, thank you for the privilege of being your people in this place. Amen. So uh, the first two verses, usually kind of uh, throwaway verses, I think, if we're all honest, people say these are throwaway verses, this is just the beginning, drop some names and things like that, it's not the real stuff. I haven't met anybody who's crocheted on a nice little thing. Paul to the people of Philippi. Like, I've never seen that. But there's a, you know, I've never seen an athlete get souped up for a game and they're like, my favorite verse of the Bible is Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ. That doesn't happen. But these are really powerful verses. And hopefully we see that briefly this morning. If verses one and two says this. It says, Paul and Timothy servants of Christ Jesus, to all God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons, he says, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the addressing of the male. And I think it kind of begins to answer a little bit of a question that we have. If this church is so famous, so joyful, so happy, so content, how do they get that stuff? Like, how do, you, how do you grab hold of this thing that that church had? What strategies did they have that they implement? What did they have that really secured them some of that joy because I would like some, right? We'd all like a little piece of that pie. So maybe we think, ah, oh, there are these Christians and they're in this place, Philippi. It must be the right place 
to have joy and happiness. Because after a while, one of the things that we think about is, well, if we move to the right place, we get in the right neighborhood, we get in the right condo, we get in the right house, we, if we can move to the right city, the right state, then you know, we could be happy and joyful. That makes sense. That's probably what they had. They went to a place with good food. Gotta have good food. People were really well educated, maybe. That's what you need. You need a place that has the same values that you have, whether they're family values or single values or whatever values, but they have my values or a place where the streets are clean. That's what you need. You need a place like that or a place that really welcomes God. Philippi must be a place that really likes God and is ushering it in. That's how you get happiness and joy. Maybe it's a place that's, you know, we think happiness comes from a place that's really affordable, uh, where you have more money coming in each month than you're spending each month, where everything is nice and really put together, but also where everything is cheap. That's, that's the place. If we could find that place, if we could move to that place, then we could have happiness. And that must be what's happening here in Philippi. Philippi was a nice place. There's my twist. It was a nice place. The city was actually formed, uh, this is my cool history moment. Uh, it was formed long ago, Alexander the Great, his dad, Philip the Great, not as great as Alexander. He's a little diminutive father. And that's the way it works. Fathers are great, but then their sons are even better. I don't know, something like that. But Philip uh, conquered this little part of Greece, of Macedonia, and he set it up and he started the city, the city of Philip, Philippi. And then what happened later is Alexander the Great also conquered it. So more battles. And then you might like this if you went to high school in America. Julius Caesar, the play by Shakespeare, it's all based on real things that happen in history. And in Act 5 of Julius Caesar, anybody read that? I mean, you had to, right, at Columbia University? Uh, in, in Act 5 of this play, Brutus, you know, etu Brutus, you know, Brutus stabs Caesar, uh, poor guy. And then Antony and Octavius battle it out in a place in Act 5 of that Shakespearean great thing that I was based on fact, but that happens in Philippi. Brutus battles Anthony and Octavius. Anthony and Octavius win. It's really great. And then Octavius and Anthony fight each other. Uh, and they fight each other on this massive Roman level battle. It's a civil war and it all really hinges on this one place and that's where it, it happens. And then after all of those civil wars, Octavius was really smart. Uh, a genius, because you now have three different generations of people battling each other. And what he decided to do was to give anybody who fought in the military, whether they were on Antony's side or Brutus's side, he would give them all a bunch of land in Philippi if they wanted it. And they could also get all of these servants and these estates, and they would be put on this trajectory within Roman society to where one day they could become senators. They could even become Caesar themselves if they wanted to. And so it was this masterstroke of building unity, which he based off of power and strength. And so this city became full of all of the things that you might think 
are really great. It was filled with uh, sporting events and they would have these great festivals there, uh, plays, theaters. They would gather around all of the artwork and all of this stuff from the Roman Empire and it would come to Philippi. That's where they would stage these great uh, plays and all of these wonderful things, the elite of the elite. It was in this city that they first declared this thing about the emperor because you can imagine the loyalty they had to the emperor. They used to say together, the emperor, he is Lord and Savior. That's what they would say to one another. The Greek words are kairos and soter. And they would proclaim that to one another even before Jesus was ever born. We th- like, that's what they proclaimed. That was their anthem. It was a leading city. It's where you could move to to give yourself to the Roman dream, where you, if you can make it there, you can make it anywhere. Uh, I think that it was really, yeah, this, if you could combine Los Angeles and New York and London and Hong Kong and you put them all together, it's like, oh, it's this kind of place, Philippi, where you could pursue life, liberty, and happiness to the end of your days, filled with elites, with slaves, with sermons or, or servants where the Roman dream really exists and there was no other space for any other dream to exist. So you think, oh, this is a place of happiness to really pursue it. The church must have been great, except this was not a place for the church to exist. The beginning of the church was Paul and Silas talking about Jesus and getting thrown into prison and shackled and tortured and beaten because there's no space for a different kind of Lord and Savior. There's no space for any other kind of dream than the Roman dream. You might think, oh, well, that must have been really hard for people, Uh, to be a church in that place. How did that happen? How could they have this happiness and joy? Because what we see is in a culture that seems to be pretty opposed to Jesus being Lord and Savior, instead we see this church that thrives. Maybe joy doesn't come from finding the right place. Maybe it's not from getting the right configuration of neighborhood and setting and environment. Maybe it's about being transformed into being the right person and being transformed to seek the, the renewal of the world around you. And I've heard many times, and it grieves me every time, uh, when I'm traveling in different places and uh, people say, oh, you're from California? That's the worst. California's the worst. It's godless, it's awful, nothing good comes. This is from Christians are saying this to me. And then they say, oh, you're from Los Angeles. Los Angeles is the worst of the worst place. I can never live there. What's the point? It's not even worth it, you know? And it it makes me sad every time. Like, God can't do anything there. I don't know if you guys have heard that. Maybe you're not traveling around being like, I'm a pastor in this city. And they're like, what's the point? (laughs) Like, that's, I mean, it's real. Uh, And Miral has kind of coached me into saying, well, I don't like where you live either or something like that. But... uh, can anything good come from Iowa? I don't know. But, but here's what I know, that if God can do something like this in Philippi, then he can do something like this here. And if God has done his work of renewal here before, he will do it and keep doing it. And that if we are in a city that is filled with people made in the image of God with lives and stories and cultures and languages and all those things, if that exists in this city, then it is right there next to God's incredible heart. 
Because God so loved Los Angeles that he gave his son to die for it that it might live. So maybe we can love this city too. Not begrudgingly, but joyfully. Not overlooking the city's warts or the trash or the, you know, the weeds. You know, it's pretty amazing. After the water of the hurricane, our, our uh, sidewalks are growing. These incredible crabgrass. I don't know if you've seen it. It's amazing. Instead of being like, this place is the worst, maybe we can say, I mean, that's something. <laughs> How about that? But what if we were patient with it and we were bold with it, but we, we knew in our hearts, ah, if God can do it there, he can do it here. So the second thing we might think about, oh, happiness. I guess it's not about what place you live because Philippi is that kind of place that's not conducive to happiness and togetherness. Maybe it's the people. And it says right here in verse one, it says to all God's holy people, or maybe your Bible says saints, to all the saints. And you're like, ah, of course. This church could have joy and happiness because all the people were awesome. All the people must have been cream of the crop. I mean, saints. We've got St. Teresa. We've got, you know, all of these saints that we love and cherish. St. Matthew, that's who these people are. They must be the best educated, the most theologically astute. They must be very well connected. They must have lots of commonality. They must have be people without problems. I mean, they must be doing miracles and these sorts of things. So of course, I could have happiness and joy if somehow I surrounded myself with the right people, with the saints. You need a group of incredible friends around you, and then you can have joy and happiness and all of the things that they have. But who are these saints of Philippi? You can read about the beginning of this church in Acts chapter 16, and maybe you'll do it later this week if you take one of the free booklets and you do your homework. Who are these? First, you see that Paul and Silas come to the city. They go out of the city to where there's a bunch of women doing a bunch of work, and he sits down with this lady, Lydia, and he talks about God and the gospel, and she believes. Lydia is amazing. Uh, she uh, was somebody who opened her heart and she believed. Like she heard it and she believed. She was a person who was looking and seeking for God, longing to know, know who God is and ready to hear the message. And you're like, of course, saint. I mean, and she is. Like she's Saint uh, Lydia of Theatria. Like she's got the name and everything. Uh, she was a prominent merchant. So she gathered uh, and dealt with purple garments, meaning she, she sold to the people up in the hills who were given all of the, the wealth and all of the stuff from the empire. She's more likened to like an ancient Coco Chanel than like somebody we think of as a lady selling fabrics on the street. She was so successful, she had a household that she managed herself, and we think, ah, oh, a house. But she basically had an entire estate of multiple families, of servants, of slaves, of family members. She had an incredible enterprise, and that's who she was, dealing with the most elite of the city and being right there among them. That's Lydia. And you're like, that makes sense. If I had more Lydias in my life, I would be happy and more dressed appropriately, right? 
But then there's the, the next person that you see that becomes part of this church is this slave girl, a person who was used and abused. Uh, she had a, a spirit within her that allowed her to do divinations and to see things and to proclaim things. And so she was just used by the people who owned her to uh, tell people their futures, a fortune teller person, which you know we have many in the city as well. And what she likely had done is moved to the city to live the dream of Philippi, and she got soaked up into it, used by it, manipulated by it, and now she works, but for somebody else's financial gain. She wasn't viewed as a person. She was viewed as an object to be used. You even see that afterwards when Paul and Silas kind of get upset with her just following them around. She keeps proclaiming, these people are here to tell you about Jesus. And for some reason that irritated them. Lots of books on that, why that was. But they turn around and they're like, get the spirit out of her. And then the people are upset. The owners of her are upset. Not that she's been made well or that there's some change in her. They're upset that they cannot profit anymore off of her. And she is a saint in Philippi. And then the other person we see is a jailer. After all that, Paul and Silas get thrown into prison. Uh, they get shackled up uh, to this big stone pillar. That's where they're supposed to stay and you know, basically get the dream of God beaten out of them, you know, put in a solitary confinement. And then one day when they come out, they won't, they'll have forgotten about this Jesus as Lord and Savior stuff, and they'll really know. But what happens is they worship and they sing songs and hymns while chained up. And there's an earthquake and people leave, but they stay. The jailer comes to kill himself out of fear because he realizes, oh, I'm now I'm really going to get it. Some Roman dream, right? And then they say, don't kill yourself. And he becomes a Christian. And his whole household becomes a Christian because he also has an estate. But the jailer is clearly just somebody who is pretty immersed in the Roman Empire, a military figure, a person with this big job, this important thing. He has all this fear around what it means uh, to be within Rome. He's terrified of the consequences for himself. Uh, kind of connecting that to our culture, it'd be like somebody who's entrenched in the drivers of our city, uh, but is also just feeling really weary from it and discouraged by it, and exhausted by it. And that's the band of misfits, the saints of Philippi. And from all uh, evidence, points to just them continually adding people like that, adding more people coming out of slavery, more people who are servants, more people out of the government, more people out of cultural class and the elites. And that was the, uh, the mishmash band of misfits that was the church of Philippi. People with prominent roles, people with no roles, people in government, people outside of government. And you might think, now wait, how could that be a church? You know, How could you have a church of people working for the government that, you know, and then these other cultural people and then these, how could you have a church like that? Surely they were just surviving and eking by and all of those on the bar margins and abandoned, that sort of thing. But no, they were thriving. They were famous for growing, famous for being generous, giving money all over 
the, the Christian world at the time, sending money to Jerusalem, sending money to North Africa, sending blankets and stuff to Paul while he's in prison. They were incredibly known for that and for advancing the gospel. But how? How? These people, really? I mean, there's, there's Lydia, but then the rest, right? She was smart, but the rest seemed to be just barely there. I think it's in these words that Paul says. He says, grace and peace to you from God, our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. When it says Lord, which is the same word that they're using to describe the emperor, they're saying, no, Jesus is Lord. He has all the authority. We think, oh, we might need to be surrounded by people with the right status. Jesus is the right status. He has the right status. He is Lord over heaven and earth. All things are below his feet. All things were created and formed and sustained in his own hands. He is Lord. Oh, we have to have the right status. He has the right status. Jesus, his name literally means Savior from sins, or the Lord will save sinners. Jesus makes the people the right people in all the, the, the most important of senses, not in the, the right makeup of our personalities or our giftings or anything like that, but he makes us right. The righteous, the whole people of God, saved from sin and death and darkness and made new. And he's also the Christ, the Messiah, the one who's going to renew the earth, See, he's making every place the right place for joy and for satisfaction. It's who he is. So Paul says, grace and peace to you from the Lord and Savior and Messiah. It's who he is. Uh, lastly, I just want you to remember the garden rebellion that happens. And we talked about this earlier in the year when we studied Genesis. There was the origins of joy, this beautiful garden that's perfect and wonderful. And then sorrow and a tree and shame and blame and uh, disunity and people wandering out into the desert, this covering their shame and cowering and hiding and the downward cycle of those people in the desert, no longer in the, the place of joy, but now they're just in the realm of sorrow, east of Eden. But our Lord Jesus Christ does something that no longer is a story, just sorrow, but it's joy. His grace the grace that Paul is saying might be extended to all of us, the, the free gift of life with him transforms that garden sorrow into joy. That's what the free gift of his, his life does. And then it says, we see that his peace is extended to them too. The peace of Jesus transforms that garden chaos into a deep well of satisfaction of a people that can know uh, a shalom of the, the world made right. And then and now we get to see them all combined together. People of sorrow, a people of joy. Why? Because of Jesus. And so grace and peace to you saints in Los Angeles. May you have an abundance of the peace and the grace of God. And may it come from Jesus. So let's go and let's take communion together. 
And, and as we get in little groups and take communion, we do everything in groups. Uh, nobody's alone. Uh, take in little groups, and I want you to think about sharing one of these questions is, uh, what grace of Jesus are you holding on to today as you take communion? Or what peace of Jesus are you holding on today as you take communion? So what's the grace or what's the peace of Jesus that you're holding on to today? And you can share that with one another and then we'll respond with one sending song. Uh, let's, let me pray for us as we take communion. Jesus, we thank you for this meal that is uh, a meal that on one hand sounds horrific, uh, your blood shed, your body given, but then we also know it is life and salvation. So that God, I pray that we would take that together uh, today out of fullness of worship. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.